episode of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to be discussing Persephone books versus Virago modern classics. And then we're going to be comparing Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own with Tea the Lighthouse. So, Simon, how are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Um, I'm, I'm suffering a little bit of reader's block at the moment, I think. Oh. I've talked about reader's block before. That's you know? So, just not really getting down to anything and just watching Gogglebox instead of reading. That's not a bad thing to spend your time doing. You know what's even worse is that I discovered Gogglebox Australia. So, is there? There is, there is. Um, I'm assuming that almost all of our listeners are far better people than me and haven't heard of Gogglebox, but it's basically a show where you watch people watching TV. And it sounds <laughs> a lot better than that makes it sound. It is, it's it hilarious. <laughs> Love it. But when I should be reading lots of books for the 1924 Club, I have found myself... Not really wanting to get into anything. I'm still reading T.F. Powers's um, something. Mark Only, that's what it's called, which is um, a beautiful book and not a, um, a physical object and not that bad inside either. It's all in dialect, though, which I'm struggling with. Oh, yeah, no, I don't like books written in dialect. I struggle. Thankfully, the prose isn't just the just the dialogue, but um, okay. still. <laughs> so we're not entirely in Merryweb territory. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I I um, set aside a huge part of books that I've read at least half of for this weekend in order to finish lots of books that I've half read. So I'm hoping that the reading bug returns to me <laughs> by then. I hope so. Maybe our discussion today will inspire you. Maybe it will. How are you? I'm good. Very good. I'm on holiday, half term. Um, I'm on my second week of half term. So as you can tell from my happy <laughs> and relaxed voice, I'm having a great time. Um, I was in Lisbon last week, which was beautiful and so hot, so much hotter than it is here. Um, and yeah, I've had lots of just lovely time to read and relax and just see friends and enjoy myself. So I'm, yeah, really, really happy. I'm really happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am. That sounds good. And I've been doing lots. I've had some fantastic reading, actually, this holiday. Um, so maybe you could read some of the things I've been reading, because they certainly wouldn't give you reader's book. What have you been reading? Well, I read another William Maxwell, The Chateau. Have you read that one? That's actually, it's not actually in my pile I've made, but it should be, because I read, I read maybe a hundred pages of it about six years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't, I didn't give up on it, it's just because I read lots of books at once, it was one of the ones that fell to the bottom of the pile and then fell off the pile. (laughs) I just thought it was utterly beautiful. I mean, I love William Maxwell. I think he's probably one of my absolute favourite writers. Oh, really? And it was just, I just loved it. Like, nothing happens, but nothing needs to happen. It's just absolutely, you know, brilliant in its understanding of humanity. I just think he's such a um, sensitive and sort of emotional writer that you can just tell he was a good person, you know? Yeah, I do like his writing a lot. I, I, um, I love his letters as well. His letters with Sylvia Townsend and Warner are really brilliant. That that oh, collection okay. called the, it's a collection called The Element of Lavishness that was yeah. just like is the best book I read in whichever year I read it. And then Claire from the Captive Reader also read and loved it. And I subsequently read his letters with Eudora Welty as well. So um, he yeah he he was a good letter writer. <laughs> oh, I still have to check those out because I'm a bit I'm a bit upset now because I've only got one of his books left to read and I don't want to read it because I don't want to run out. <laughs> Maybe the letters will be. You can sustain for it long. Have you read short stories? I have, yeah. Because I've not read any of those, but I always, 
I always think from the way he writes that he'd be an expert right? short story writer. He is a very good short story writer. I mean, he could do no wrong as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Which one do you have left? Uh, the Folded Leaf. Oh, Ooh, well, what else did you read? Um, oh, that's a good question. I remember that one overshadowed everything else. <laughs> so brilliant. I've got loads of books to read on Vikings and Romans for school. So um, I've got a lot of nonfiction coming up, which isn't as exciting. But it's always interesting to learn about new things. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Cool, right. Do well, you want to get us started? I will. And first of all, thank you to Lindsay, who emailed in with a suggestion for Persephone versus Rogue Morning Classics. It's a great decision, um, or great topic. Um, and um, from the outset, I'm going to say this is one of the ones that I already feel is going to be incredibly painful to try and pit them against each other. And of course, in real life, we don't have to pick one of them. <laughs> They're both brilliant, and we can have them both. But, yeah. <laughs> without Friday, um I guess... Um, well, I mean, I really, really love Persephone books, and I think with Virago, this is my original, my, my sort of initial um, broad sweeping statement, I love a lot of Virago modern classics, but I wouldn't say that I would pick one up assuming that I'd love it in the same way that I pick up a Persephone assuming I'm going to love it. Mm. I think maybe the net that Virago does is spread wider, perhaps. So with Persephone, they're not all the same, but they, they, but they are all from Nicola Bowman's my, oh, not mine. Um, they're all her <laughs> books that she loves. She didn't write them all under pen names. <laughs> but, um, and it's like, I, I trust her opinion. There are some that I've not had success with, but in general, I'm pretty sure I will like them, even if they're quite different from one another. Whereas Virago, they seem to, they go off into, um, I know, there's a lot, of, a lot of older books. There's a lot of, from, I don't know, if I pick one up and it says set in Ireland in 1880, then I always put it back on the shelf. And there <laughs> seems to be a lot of Virago running classics set in Ireland in 1880. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say I've ever come across any actually <laughs> there's probably absolutely none but that's just the impression <laughs> I get and if it's ever like an Australian woman who's trying to you know, break yeah. beyond the bounds of her rural outback life then again for some reason that doesn't appeal so much having said that there are lots of Raga books that I really love and you know if that woman was trying to break out of her life in the British countryside <laughs> then, then I'd run towards it. Yeah, and if it was set in Ireland in 1920, I'd probably surround towards it. But <laughs> it's the Ireland 1880 combination that I cannot cope with—the <laughs> entirely hypothetical and non-existent <laughs> Ireland 1880 <laughs> combination. Before I dig my hole deeper, what what are your thoughts before, um, broadly? Well, you know, Simon, you've taken the words out of my mouth. I I feel exactly the same as you. Okay. Um, you know, there's many variety of modern classics that I have adored and amongst them are some of my favorite books but again like you say I wouldn't walk into a bookshop see a collection of variety of modern classics and think oh I'm definitely going to like all of those that's just not the case because they do pick books from a wider variety of periods authors countries etc etc um and I don't some of this is probably going to sound very controversial but I'm going to say Ooh. it okay. Um, I do sometimes feel that they don't pick based on quality. I think they pick based on gender and um, ideology rather than the actual literary quality. Oh, that's so, intriguing. So do you have any examples? Well, I'm not going to be able to think of any now. Am I? <laughs> 
I've certainly come across books that I've read and thought, well, they've picked this because it's got a very strong feminist message or it's very political or whatever. Um, it's not necessarily a good book. It's not necessarily something that has lasted the test of time. Um, and some of them I find, yeah, I feel like they've picked them because they are, because they're written by women and because they're about women's issues. And, you know, despite the fact that I would fully identify myself as a feminist, I do think that sometimes they're picking books just for the sake of, you know, bringing another woman back into the spotlight. I don't always think that these books need to be brought back into the spotlight. Just because someone's a woman and was writing about women's issues at a time when people weren't writing about women's issues doesn't make their book worth publishing. That's my opinion on that. It's controversial. Well, it'd be more it'd be more easy to argue against you or with you if if you had any examples. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm trying to think of some examples. Because <laughs> um, I can't think of any, but but it's entirely possible that I wouldn't I, have picked them up. I don't have my books. Um, with me uh, most of my viragos actually at home back at my mum's house so I don't have them I can't I don't have a shelf (laughs) to inspire me and think oh yes but I probably would have got rid of them if I'd have felt that way anyway so um, like for example actually I can think of one so uh, Miles Franklin my brilliant career love the first one Mm -hmm. second one um, my career goes bung I think or something like that it's just not as good a book and it's I just think actually it's not really I didn't think it was worth being republished there's also some um for example let me try and think of her name I can't think Enid Bagnold Hmm. who I really like the squire but the loved and envied I don't think is a particularly good book and again I think it's just been picked because you know she was a prominent woman writer it's like oh isn't it a shame that her books have gone out of print and um the happy foreigner as well which personally I think is rubbish um you know, it's yes, it's interesting because it's it's about a woman who was an ambulance driver during the war. Great, but it's not a good book. And there are plenty of other books about women in the war. There are plenty of other books about women who've done interesting or unusual things that that are a well written to boot. Um, and I think sometimes they pick their books based on who's written it and their experience, as opposed to the quality of the story that's being told. Yeah. Okay. Um... Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense, and I totally would agree with you. I just I'm racking my brain. The the only Virago's I've read that I didn't think were particularly well well no. So the early Molly Keynes I don't like, but I don't know if I think they're badly written or not. Just a bit. Oh no, I really like Molly Keane. Um, I like some of her later ones, but the early well, I'm trying to know what it, I can't remember the net title of the one I read, but it was um it was all about hunting essentially. <laughs> so that <laughs> might be what put me off rather than the actual quality of it. Um. I think I've got again, sort of. I've I've gone to read the ones that are less about um, or the, the the ones that I think they've probably chosen because they were written. Um, and yeah, so, but I just I haven't. I mean, I've not read any Ina Bagnard. I've not read um, any Miles Franklin. So I I've, um, <laughs> I may have missed out on the on the not so good ones. And I certainly haven't read much of what they've published since or, or reprints of books from since. 1950 maybe so I'm not really familiar with oh I did read one called Tea and Tranquilizers that that was terrible and that was an example of one that was published because it had admirable feminist views with which I'm in full accord but it was terribly written (laughs) yeah I think there's a lot of the sort of 60s and 70s books that are have been picked because they are right on as Mm. opposed to being 
um, good stories. And I think also some of the ones that were written, sort of 19th, 18th century ones, again, it's like, oh, well, we'll publish her because there are only three women who were publishing books in the 17th century. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, I mean, it's great that we're acknowledging that they that these women were writing, but they probably didn't get much success because their writing's not very good. And it's actually okay to say that. Um, and I, I feel a bit sometimes they're a little bit too... Um, kind of they're not picky enough I don't think and that's what I like about Persephone is that even if I don't like all of their books I mean I have read some of their books and thought oh actually I'm not really enjoying this this one's not really calling to me but I can still see why it's been chosen and I can see that other people would enjoy it because I can see there's a quality to the prose and there's all that kind of thing it's just not my cup of tea if you see what I mean Mm. I've never read something and thought that was awfully written I think the only, and we should get positive soon, but the only, the only Persephone I read that I thought was really bad was um, Judith Viorst's It's Hard to Be Hip Over 30. Oh, really? Um, have you read that one? No, I haven't. So it's poetry, and it's, um, I just thought that it was really shoddily written, the just um, quite bad verse, as well as being yeah. very whiny. Poetry, <laughs> um, well, like, I, I do find poetry difficult, so that's why I, I didn't, Pick it up. I'm not a massive poetry person. But perhaps once I'm over 30, I will immediately come around to it. I mean, it's pretty hard to be hit under 30, exactly. I found. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's the same with me. Yeah. <laughs> but let's be positive. Let's talk about the ones we like a yes. lot. So which, which Rug and Running classics do you particularly like? Um, I think, actually, um, my favourite Viragi Modern classic, and one of my favourite books of all time, in fact, um, would be The Rector's Daughter uh, ah. by F. I want to say F.M. Mayer, is that right? If I got it that is one. right, yeah. Um, which I just thought was the most heartrending, beautiful, but like terrifying book at the same time. Um, that's just about, uh, for those of you who haven't heard of it, it's about a woman, I think she's set in the 20s. Do you know what? It's written in 1924. Is it? It is. It's isn't it? <laughs> um, it's about it's set in the twenties. It's about a, a woman who's in her twenties, and she is the daughter of a rector, and they live in a very um, not particularly nice village in the countryside. It doesn't really have many redeeming features. Quite a bleak place, actually. And um, she is quite lonely, and she's desperate to get married and have children. Like she's very motherly, she's very affectionate, but she's not really got anybody to lavish her affection on it's you know it's a village mainly made up of older people um and then i think it's a curate comes to be the is it the curate for her father he comes Mm. and it's been a long time since i read it um and she falls in love with him and it's for a while you think that they're going to be together and it's wonderful and then i won't say anything more (laughs) i think you've probably said enough (laughs) but it's you know it's it's really really heartrending but at the same time you know it's it's beautiful and it's hard to kind of explain why without explaining exactly what happened. <laughs> it's a really, and it's a really brilliantly written book. All of her books are really good actually. And they're all Virago modern classics. Um, I, that, and she was a real discovery for me and I only discovered her because I'd picked up a Virago modern classic. Um, and I actually discovered Dorothy Canfield, who, who is a Persephone and a Virago author, mm. um, three Virago modern classics. Cause the first book I read of hers wasn't The Homemaker, which is a, quite a big Persephone favorite amongst a lot of people. Um, it was, it was called a book called The Brim, Brimming Cup, which I actually think is better than The Homemaker. Mm. And, um, it's a really brilliant book. I'm trying to think of some other really good. Um, really enjoy um, 
and Molly Keane's books. I know you don't love them, but I think they're really good. Um, and I'm just trying to think of other favourite Farago people. Well, um, I'll, I'll pick up the baton for a second, if you like. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to say, I, I have read The Rector's Daughter and I remember nothing at all about it. Um, <laughs> I remember not loving it as much as, as other people did. And I also have had a, a plan that never came to fruition, but still could, of um, reading The Rector's Daughter by F.M. Mayer, The Vicar's Daughter by E.H. Young and The Clergyman's Daughter by George Orwell together <laughs> to see <laughs> what similarities there might be between the three of them. So there's a project for another day. Yeah. Um, Children of the Manse or something, I can call it. Anyway, um, I... <laughs> My my favourite Fragment Classic is probably also my favourite Persephone because they both published it and it's one of my favourite books, which is Diary of a Provincial Lady. Oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Although, of course, Virago published it long before Persephone did with, in fact, an introduction from Nicola Bowman. <laughs> so there's a nice um, link there. Um, other Virago Morning Classics I really love um, Lolly Willow, Sylvia Townsend Warner, about a spinster who becomes a witch. Um, the Love Child, which we talked about a few times on here, um, by Edith Olivier, um, which was one that I did pick up just because it was a Bragging Morning Classic. I'll always pick them up to see if they're in a charity shop or something to see yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe this is the one I like. And thankfully, picked, immediately read it. In fact, I went to a park and picked it up and read it immediately, which is very seldom happens when I buy books. <laughs> um, and obviously, um, Elizabeth von Arnhem, very grateful for them yeah. republishing her. Hadn't realised until recently that they basically made up that name. Did you know this? No. So, let's see if I get this right. So, she was born Mary Beecham, and yeah. she married Von Arnim, and she married Russell at different times. Um, she was sort of known as Elizabeth, because of Elizabeth of her German garden, to her fans, and eventually also to her family as well. Um, because, uh, as you know, her books were otherwise published anonymously. Yeah. And and so they just sort of put these together when they republished them to form Elizabeth von Arnhem, whereas before she'd only ever been known as by the author of Elizabeth of her German garden. Oh, I didn't... So there you go. They not only brought her back, they made up her name, which when I went to Elizabeth von Arnhem conference recently got quite complex because we're like, what do we call her? I don't know. <laughs> and interesting that Varaga Modern Classics chose to give her her husband's name. Yes, exactly. Um <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you said about that. I've just thought actually with you mentioning Elizabeth, probably one of my favourite Virago authors who I've discovered through Virago, Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, she's on my list as well. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. And Barbara Pym. Yes, yes. Um, in fact, I like it with those authors, which Virago do perhaps more than Persephone, is that they will republish a large amount of an author's yeah. work. I mean, obviously, there's Dorothy Whipple and there's D. E. Stevenson, maybe that um, Stephanie have done more than one of, but and there, well, a few that they've done more than one of, but they they don't seem to in the same ways. Virago just like here's everything Elizabeth Taylor yeah. wrote, <laughs> which they in fact they didn't do with this for Elizabeth Von Arnhem. There's plenty of hers that, that they haven't redone, but they did they did quite a few. Yes, yeah. the ones they haven't republished is probably for good reason. <laughs> well, you say that, but Christopher and Columbus, I don't think was ever a rock and running classic, and that's my favourite Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Hey, really, I think I've got that actually. I haven't read it though. Ah, it's um, it's about twins who um, twins who um are half German and half I think half English, maybe half American, um, who move to America from England to and um, it's very funny and quite surreal. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like exactly your cup of tea. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one I wrote down, which I know you also love, is One Fine Day. Oh yes, of Molly course. Molly Pantaloons. 
um, which I know that Persephone would like to republish, <laughs> but have not been able to, sadly. I wonder if that's confidential. I might cut this out. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can never remember what I've heard like in the office and what I've read online, because <laughs> I, when I'm in London, I often pop into the Persephone office and say hello. <laughs> Including one time I popped into the Persephone office and ended up stuffing envelopes for the entire <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> Nicola very sweetly was just like, oh, hello, sit down. As though she were expecting me, which she was not. And I joined lots of ladies who lunch to um to stuff envelopes. It was great fun. Wonderful. Got some free books out of it. So. Sounds exactly like Nicola. <laughs> oh, talking about Persephone, um, the one thing that has always upset me about Farago is that they refuse to acknowledge the brilliance of Dorothy Whipple, who I think is extraordinary and I'm so grateful for Persephone having republished her because I would never have come across her otherwise. Yes, we talked, didn't we, in the in the Whipple versus Stevenson section about the, the Whipple line that Virago um, made up. Yes, maybe we shouldn't pour scorn on them who wants more for that, but <laughs> consider it noted in the cons column, Virago. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so I think what? my other favourite Persephone's... Um, Certainly. Well, Joe, there are some I've read, Persephone's that I've read and thought, hmm, I'm not entirely sure that I would have picked this. Um, like, for example, I was thinking about this recently because I just saw the Suffragette film, hmm. which is fantastic, by the way. If you haven't seen well, I'm, go- I'm going tomorrow. Oh, you're <laughs> yeah. going to love it. I cried and everything. It was very emotional. Oh. <laughs> um, their, their book, No Surrender, which is, um, I think it was written in 1913, so it's a very contemporary account of the suffragette movement which is an absolutely dire novel that's all is it yeah really bad like really boring and badly written but i i could also see at the same time that it was it was republished because it's a very accurate and quite searing account of the realities of being a suffragette and not the side of the story you often hear which is what it was like being a suffragette as an upper class woman this is about a working class woman's experience of, of being a suffragette which as you will find out when you go and watch the film that's the focus of the suffragette as well mm. so i thought um for that purpose it was really interesting and i do think it's fair to, to have republished that because actually there is very little available about that period and, and about the experiences of, of women from that social class um, who were suffragettes. So even though I thought the, the book was rubbish in terms of the story and the way it was crafted, I did see the historical significance of it. Okay. Um, yeah, so that would be the only one where I was just like, oh, you know, the quality's not there. But then at the same time, as I say, I can see the reason why. Whereas with Virago, I often think there's no quality and I don't really see the reason why. <laughs> well, my favourite Persephone is other than Diaphragmatic Lady. Um, well, actually, London War Notes by Molly Punch Downs is probably up there now. Now that they've republished that, mm-hmm. but I had read that before um, in another edition. But um, Family Roundabout, which were Crompton, I love yeah. Hostages to Fortune, Elizabeth Cambridge, yeah. Consequences, E.M. Delafield. Yeah, I'm just yeah agreeing with everyone. Yeah, and I'm just wrapping those off. No information at all. Sorry, guys, <laughs> who are listening. But um, they're basically they're all just very brilliant early modern, sorry, early 20th century novels <laughs> about families mostly. Um, if you had to pick one favourite, what would it be? See, I think it might be Family Roundabout, uh, okay. but I've not read it for so long. And my recent rereads of Ritual Crompton or re- new reads, I don't love her as much as I used to. I still love her. I mean, I mean, if I had to pick one, it would be Dive Ritual Lady, but that almost doesn't feel like a Persephone to me because I'd read it dozens of times before yeah. it became a Persephone. Um, so I'm going to stick with Family Roundabout. Um, 
just and which is also the way I found Persephone. I, I I had read that one and and then saw it in the library, saw that someone had republished it because I'd read it in an older edition, and wanted to find out more because of that. Mm. Um, which is your all-time favourite? Well, I think it would have to be Green Banks. Hmm. Uh, Dorothy Whipple, but I also have to say I do think Susan Gressel is amazing, um, and I love Fidelity. Um, it's a very good book. Yes, it's a very good book. So you know, it's difficult for me to choose, but I do think because Dorothy Whipple is you know one of my absolute favourites, I have to pick one of hers. And Green Banks, I think, is my you know the one. If I could only ever read one Dorothy Whipple again, it would be Green Banks. I would uh-huh. yeah, again and again. One of my other favourites I want to mention is The Runaways by Elizabeth Anna Hart. Have you read that one? I know I haven't read that one. Or just The Runaway, perhaps. Oh, it's really lovely. So the reprint they've done is of a later edition, which has woodcuts by... Da-da-da... Gwen Reveret, which... So it's a Victorian, I think Victorian or Edwardian, um, children's book about Runaway. And the, the mixture of the story is lovely and the woodcuts are wonderful. And it's just... It's really charming. It's a lovely, charming children's book, and you don't expect to find a children's book, perhaps, in the in the um, Persephone catalogue if you only know it a bit. Obviously, you know it very well, but for people who only know it a bit, you might not think there'd be books you should give children there. But that is a perfect children's book, I think. Oh, I'm really going to have to say that. That sounds lovely. Um, let's talk about how they look as well. Mm. They're lovely. <laughs> they do look beautiful, and they. I love the end papers, and mm. I always feel like I'm reading something very luxurious and special. And I find, because I often read books on public transport, whenever I get a Persephone book out of my bag, people always sort of look again. Um, mm. <laughs> it, it's obviously a, a book that's a bit different, that's from a different press or whatever, and I think it's very attractive and very striking to see... Do you feel more glamorous when you're reading it? I do feel more glamorous when I'm reading it. I feel like I've just got off the Eurostar from Paris, (laughs) um, and I'm very cosmopolitan and sophisticated, um, which I'm not at all. (laughs) um, Yeah, it's... I I just... You feel a little bit special, don't you? You feel like you're part of a club when you're reading it. Yeah. Well, that's how I feel. I have... I did want to... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sophisticated that I just interrupt people all the time. <laughs> um, I did once vow that if I saw someone reading one on public transport, I'd go and chat to them. Yeah, no, I think that's the, that's the thing. You would, because it's like you know that... I mean, if you saw someone else reading a Penguin Classics, for example, everyone's doing that. But if you look across, you're like, there's probably only about 3,000 people who <laughs> And you're one of them. And you'd have the same tastes, wouldn't you? Well, the one time I did see someone reading, and it turned out to be Miss Pettigrew's for a day, um, which is lovely, but also their bestseller. So I thought, hmm, could be somebody that's the only one they know about. And she looked so angry. And she's, <laughs> she's probably just concentrating, but it's like, oh, no, I'm too intimidated. So this <laughs> next time, I, I mean, this was like 10 years ago, but um, next time I will. <laughs> I've never seen anyone else reading a Persephone. Uh, I feel like this um, is an experience that needs to happen. I do remember buying one secondhand in Hay and Y once when the lady running the shop said, oh no, I instructed whoever does the shelving to put any of those aside for me. <laughs> I thought, well, I want to bond with you, but I also want to make sure you let me buy this book. <laughs> so I swiped it away. Um, my poor brother always tells me off for talking about M papers. He's like, who cares what the M papers look like? Stop talking about M papers to put the book. I think the M papers are so beautiful. 
But they really are, and they're also really so well chosen for the content of the book. So well chosen. Um, yes, I got, for those who don't know, they always pick the end papers based on a fabric which is from around the same time the, the novel was published, or the book was published, or book was set, or whatever. Um, and it's, it's a, yeah, really enhances it. It does. It's a little treat to open it up and be like, oh, what's inside? Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I just really like it. And it's, again, that extra special touch. It makes it seem more luxurious and, you know, just a really nice experience. It's nice to have a book like that out on your table or in your bag or whatever and you just get it out. And it's like, oh, it's a lovely object. Yes. <laughs> Do you shelve yours together? Um, I don't, actually, because I don't like the look of matching sets. I like things to be distributed evenly throughout a shelf. And I'm also a big alphabetical um, book person i can't not have my books in alphabetical order because i can't ever find them ah. so yeah. i i have mine all together in number order ah yeah which i mean obviously i don't know what numbers the different books are so i spend forever trying to find them <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i take recourse to the catalog which i also have shelved with them so I can... that's very clever um yeah i i also in fact have my vragos together but in two different places because half of them are in one more than half of them are in some set at my parents house and the rest are here but they're both in virago shelves <laughs> well let's talk about that actually because um obviously you've got the earlier viragos with the green spines mm. um with the green band across the top and then the slightly later ones have still got the green spine but they don't have a green band across the front and then the latest ones are well whatever you know they're not necessarily they're not actually uniform in any way they're i think they have. They seem to me, anyway, to have started making authors collection of authors' works look, looking uniform. Mm. Um, but they're not. There's not a uniform style across the entire um, company anymore. It does seem a really baffling marketing decision to me. To I mean, everyone loved the bottle green. They yeah. look beautiful. For them to be like, no, we don't want something that will make people want to buy more from this series. We don't want to be able to be identified in a shop. Let's scrap all of that. I mean, they look pretty now, but they don't look... Yeah, as you say, they're not uniform. Just, yeah. I mean, I can see maybe they would have... Maybe it started to look dated or something. But bring it back, Brago, bring it back. Bring back the, the yeah. beautiful green that you had in the original series. I love those original ones. And, you know, I I think it's a real shame that you can't... Because that's the thing. Like When I go to a bookshop, I like I can see Persephone books straight away. Like, I often go to Foils and Foils stock Persephone books. And I can, they just jump straight out. And like Virago books, they just, they could be at the, you can't, the only sign is the tiny apple on the spine and you're not, can't always see it from a distance. So I think, yeah, that was a bit of a mistake really. Cause I, you know, if you want to have something that's exclusive or something that's, you know, if you want to make a big deal about the fact that these are books by women, we should be encouraging people to read these. If you can't find them, then yeah. <laughs> not much good to you, is it? I'm sure they have their reasons, but I can't imagine what they are. <laughs> so. Someone can enlighten us. That would be. I would be interested to <laughs> make that decision. I mean, then I'm sure it's probably a commercial decision, but it's. Um, I think it's a shame aesthetically that they did that. Absolutely. Um, we have, are we going to make a choice? Is our choice obvious? Well, yeah. It sounds like. Gosh, time is running away, isn't it? Yes, I think um, mine's definitely Persephone. Well, likewise. Um, and I should say, yeah, I've had a chat with Nicola about this before. I think a lot of people think of Persephone as being these cosy novels, and a lot of them are. But when you think of what the first one in the series was, William, an Englishman by Cicely Hamilton, yeah. it's this very dark and unsettling story of people being caught up in World War One. These like sort of these um, left-wing people who are very idealistic and 
have to face the horrors of war. Not cosy at all. No, and I also think even the ones that people perceive to be cosy aren't really very cosy because it's about it's a lot of them. The women are being very honest, or the protagonist, whoever it might be, being very honest about the difficulties of life in many ways. And even if it's set in the countryside and it's a very nice house and all the rest of it, it's still emotionally you're being allowed into the inner lives of what are often quite troubled and frustrating experiences. And I think that honesty is really important to read and not cosy at all. Yeah, so with that caveat, we mm. we both picked Persephone. There you yeah. go, to your book decision made. Um, yeah, let's turn over to a an author who certainly is a Persephone author, and I think probably a Virago author as well, although I'm not sure. No, I don't <laughs> think she is, actually. Is she not? Why? I wonder why. I wonder why. Hmm. Anyway, Virginia Woolf. <laughs> um, do you want to kick us off? Okay. Um, right, so I think I'll talk about uh, To the Lighthouse first and then I'll talk about Lorraine and Fontaine. Cool. Um, to the Lighthouse is not actually my favourite, Virginia Woolf, I have to say. Um, but it's a beautiful book. It's like a poem, isn't it? All of her books are like poems. But um, I think it's a really brilliant exploration of relationships between children and parents and grief and loss of innocence. Um, and it's a really interesting book in that it's, if you know about Virginia Woolf, you can read a lot of autobiography into it if you want mm-hmm. to. Um, but even taking that element out of it, it's still a very wonderful, interesting story as well. There's so many gaps in the story. There's so many people and the character of, I think it's Lily, isn't it? The painter. Mm. Um, he's this sort of outsider who comes in and her experience of looking at things from the outside. Um, it's really, ingenious really that in that intervention of that character um and the setting is so beautiful that the in cornwall and it's just yeah it just reminds me of looking at a turner painting or something that's how i always feel when i read it i just see all these swirling colors and the blues mm, that's um, lovely. yeah it's just a really powerful book and i think it's the first virginia wolf i read actually and i was just blown away by it I just thought, wow mm. i didn't know you could write like this i didn't know this was possible um and then A Room of One's Own is, I think, very interesting to read from a historical perspective of what it was like to be um, a woman and at the time in Virginia Woolf, you know, being a real advocate for women having the opportunity to sit down and take the time to write and give their opinions and have a voice and all the rest of it. But um, I think, you know, I'm quite, I find it quite tro- Virginia Woolf quite troubling in that respect in that she was very unaware of her own privilege um and certainly after i don't know if you've read uh, you probably have virginia wolf and the servants alice and light i actually haven't i've had it for years and i still haven't read it oh you should read it i think you find it really interesting after i read that um and how sort of horribly just dismissive of the lower orders she was mm-hmm. um it really <laughs> colored my perception of her writing and of her as a person which i know it shouldn't do but you know as a rampant socialist i just I just thought I really cannot um, abide this um, attitude that um, she just couldn't see what life was like for people who didn't have her social advantages, her education, her financial independence and saying, oh, you know, in order to write as a woman, you need to have an income, you need to have a space. You know, actually, 99% of women don't have that. 
and saying that you can only achieve this or you can only do that if you've got this without actually giving any solution or, or, or way in which women could achieve that for themselves or acknowledging that for many women that might be difficult. Um, I just find that really difficult, which is why even though a lot of people are like, oh, Room of One saying is amazing, it's this real feminist polemic about you know, how women need to be heard and all the rest of it, yes, but from a very limited social perspective, yes, those women who can afford to be heard can be heard and those who can't won't. Um, and she doesn't really acknowledge that, which is why I find that a little bit difficult. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> I'll stop talking now. Yeah, good intro. Um, yeah, so yes, I think I read somewhere that five. She says five hundred pounds a year and a room for one zone mm-hmm. is what we need. And I think I read that um, with inflation and all that, that five hundred pounds a year is something like fifty thousand a year. Yeah. Or, or I can't remember exactly the number. I remember it being vastly more than the average wage, like just unattainable for most people, or at least yeah. Certainly more than average, if not, you know, millions. Um, so I picked this this section of the podcast, I should say, and the, I I was thinking originally Virginia Woolf's fiction versus Virginia Woolf's non-fiction. That seemed really broad, and we probably will broaden a bit. But I wanted to pick, I wanted to narrow down a bit, um, and I picked my favourite of her non-fiction pieces. And I have such difficulty picking my favourite of her novels, and I, I chose this one in the end. The first one I read was Mrs. Dalloway, which I read after having seen the film The Hours um, oh. but wanting to go and find out some more um, and I that one often battles out for my favourite as well but I, it's where her sort of her bigotry against Christians comes to the fore and I find that quite uncomfortable <laughs> so, so that, that doesn't help its cause um, and she was horribly bigoted against Christians but um, Till I House I think is representative of I'm going to say all her novels, but all, all her novels except for the very early ones and perhaps some of the later ones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> basically, of those middle ones, <laughs> where, where I love what you said about it being like lots of colours swirling around because I can never remember what happens in Virginia Woolf's books. And I've read all of them at least, or we've talked about this before, all of them except Night and Day at least once, and <laughs> some of them many times. And I still never know what happens. Um, but the experience of reading them and the things she can do with language is just mm-hmm. astonishing. Like, like there's there's no worse sort of writer than someone who's trying to write like Virginia Woolf and can't do it. And there's <laughs> millions of them. <laughs> so, and all these people who fill uh, you know, lots of flowery images and through of consciousness and all this sort of thing that is but can very easily go horribly wrong. Yeah. But um, but when she does it, it's just you. I I think I can't remember if I said it before here. Or I've, I've said it on my blog. I think that. Um, most writers I read seem to try to use language um, however they can to say what they want to say. With Virginia Woolf, it seems like words are like transforming themselves to match what she wants to say. They fit so perfectly. It's like language is like finding well, like what does Virginia Woolf want to say? We'll we'll make sure it works <laughs> rather than her being uh. the one who has to try and make language work. It's just, I just find it astonishing. Um, and that's yeah. So I find that into thy house as much as I do any of the other of her sort of major novels. Um, A Room of One's Own, I completely take what you say about um, about her narrow-mindedness, perhaps when it comes to class, and I think it's well known that she was a snob. But, um, <laughs> but I think what I also find really interesting about A Room of One's Own really successful isn't so much looking at what, she wants for women in the present and in the future, but looking at the women in the past and um, all the things she says about um, Shakespeare's sister, 
Um, and what would have happened? I can't remember if we talked about this before or not. But what would have happened to Shakespeare's sister, or so someone with equal talent, um, had they been born a, a woman, and just how they would have come to nothing because there was no room for that. And when she talks about women's literary history and women's um, cultural history, I find it just a really, really an overview, um, as well as being very funny. I think a lot of people are scared of the book or scared of Virginia Woolf in general because they think. Or who is afraid of Virginia Woolf? Everyone's afraid of Virginia Woolf because they think she's going to be um, difficult to read or too serious or too highbrow. Whereas, in fact, both in fiction and non-fiction, I find her incredibly funny. Yeah, and I think actually her work is very accessible. If you don't try, it's kind of like um, when I try and read a book in French, if you don't, if you try and understand every word and piece it all together, it's not going to work. You have to just get the gist of it and allow yourself just to swim in it, I think. You just swim and yeah. it's more about the impressions that it gives to you than the actual literal meaning. And no, I could completely see what you're saying. It's very, um, she is, you know, she was obviously very interested in women's roles and um, her knowledge about women's roles throughout history and her desire to make women's voices heard was very commendable, of course. But um it just I cannot understand how get over the class. <laughs> yeah, I mean she was just bleak, like that kind of element of I don't see how you can be for women and also then not be for everybody being able to have a voice. Because feminism isn't just about women, it's about everybody, it's about equality in general. Hmm. And there was seems to be absolutely no desire whatsoever from on her part to to hear to allow everybody to have a voice. It's like, well what about the voice of your servants? You don't care about them. You know, you expect to be yeah. waited on hand and foot by women who you pay to serve you, but you're not interested in hearing their voice. You're only interested in hearing the voices of people with five thousand pounds, five hundred pounds a year, or whatever. Um, and there's that lack of acknowledgement that actually the voices that you do hear from women throughout history are those of a very particular social standing. So, you know, ninety nine percent of women are always going to be silenced. Yeah, it's and it's yeah. I can't possibly deny any of that, <laughs> and yet I don't know. I guess I'm just comparing it to other things that people were saying at the time. I read all these books about spinsterhood, which I've talked about before in the period that just um, so damning of well, particularly single women, but women in general. So, and she, I think she was so advanced for her time that we may have to forgive her not being advanced enough. I don't know. Um, I, I certainly don't think everyone's own is complete as a guide to what is right for um, both genders in the 21st century, because mm. it for, for everyone because it can't possibly be. But um, for the significance of what it was saying at the time, I don't know because novels in the same way it doesn't really matter as much if if the if times have changed and if if standards have changed because you know you're reading a novel set in. 1920 whatever whereas with non-fiction if it's trying to say this is what i believe women should have then it's maybe hard to take that step back and say this is what she believed women should have in 1929 yeah rather than this is what she believed is true for all time yeah i think no and i agree with you i think sometimes we can be very judgmental of people and say well you know how can they not have done this or how can they have believed that you know they should have been better than that and actually yeah we do have to think people are products of their time and you know i like to think that well virginia wolf was a very well educated woman she should have been had her eyes opened enough to see you know that the class 
was a, was a big problem. But then, you know, perhaps if you're not mixing with people from different classes, you did never think about it, and she never needed to think about it. And I'm sure there are plenty of things I never think about because I don't need to think about them. So, you know, there is that to consider. Um, yes, who knows which of our opinions will be considered reprehensible in you know, oh, 80 years' time. <laughs> right, exactly. So, no, absolutely. And at least she did something. At least she spoke about it. At least she was a voice and she raised it as an issue. And, I, you know, A Room of One's Only is fantastic. I haven't actually read a huge amount of her other nonfiction, I have to say. I've read um, her sort of literary essays, which are incredibly incisive, as you would expect. Mm. Um, have you read Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown? Yes, I have, yeah. Oh, that one's very funny. <laughs> um, she, is, she is hilarious and she's wonderful and... Um, I think that I think she has suffered though from an overzealous um, autobiographical reading of her work. Okay. She's so obsessed with her life and her suicide, and that's I think has overshadowed everything. And I remember at university, people um, sort of talking about her books and being like, "Oh, well, you can see from this that she was depressed, or you can see from this that this is." That is that when people read Sylvia Plath, mm, they just mm. read her death into everything. Um, and I think that's a real shame. I think that she's, her work's been polluted a little bit by the way in which she died. And I would argue, actually, that it would be quite nice to step back from that and read her without with a clean slate and just appreciate her for her talent rather than always thinking about who she was and what she represented and, you know, ultimately the fact that she, she did take her own life. You know, I don't think that should necessarily always be relevant. Um, and I'm just I'm talking to myself here saying, you know, Rachel, don't judge by her. <laughs> I shouldn't. You know, I know I shouldn't. But I just remember reading that book about her, how the way she treated her servants was I was just like, oh, I cannot respect you now. <laughs> um, but, you know, I have to get past that. I think you're so right about people reading her life into her work. But I think that's another reason perhaps that people are surprised that she's funny, because yeah. you think of her sad ending and forget that, you know, Long, long and full life for that yeah and the majority of her life she didn't have mental illness at all you know so she you know she she wasn't always overshadowed by this experience and she managed to manage it for, yeah. for many years because uh, she i mean she she was what was she 65 something like that yeah. when she died which obviously is very young to die but but she'd done a lot before that. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, a lot of people maybe who know about her from having watched the film, The Hours, mm, whatever, mm. you know, they think Nicole Kidman in that she looks like she's in her 30s, so they assume she died very young. Or, mm, and so mm. actually, no, she did have a full life. Um, she was married. She had many friends. You know, she was a much-loved aunt and all the rest of it. You know, she wasn't this mm. sad woman sitting in a corner her whole life. So, no. Absolutely. I um, and yes, so. I do think um, her nonfiction does reflect a lot of her sort of just her knowledge about so many areas mm. and her. I, I like saying about her insightful literary opinion. She she's one of those few critics of the time I think who were not only insightful about the past but insightful about the present. Um, so she writes about Jane Austen and about yeah. you know all, all sorts of older writers. Um, she's great admiration for Sammy Richardson I think, but she. Um, she in Mr. Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, which is about for those who haven't read it, um, Mr. Bennett is Arnold Bennett. Um, Mrs. Brown is a, is a made-up character, and she's sort of mocking, quite unjustly in some ways, the way that Edwardians would have written about the everyday life of someone and how it was far too specific. She says something about Mrs. Brown would have got on the train. Mr. Bennett would tell you where she would have paid her fee. Mr. Bennett would say how much or something. <laughs> something that, and she was more interested in. In the internal mind and, and stuff like that but but i think 
there are few writers from the period who have such a good sense of what is going on in literature of the time and a great great understanding of the different of what the changes that are happening the changes that um happening to literature if not perhaps the changes that are happening culturally yeah i mean she really had her finger on the pulse and yeah, she's a real in. She's a fantastic person to read to have a real insight into what was going on culturally um, mm. during that period because she had a hand in everything. She knew everybody. She was interested in everything. She was a real um, polymath in the fact that she was interested in so many different things. Um, so yeah, I always, I always find that as well. I find this latest, most recently when reading David a biography of David Garnett. Um, obviously, he was at least tangentially in the Bloomsbury group. That every everyone he knew and and many of the same people that she knew they've all had biographies from that they all had their letters and diaries published it's just we have such yeah. a great knowledge of that group it's fantastic but it but yes as you say it seemed like that everyone she knew was famous <laughs> and she must have had friends who weren't but um but no it's, it's very like you know it's she's quite unique in that respect in that being at this hub of this of of everything that was going on and you know it wasn't just literature it was you know Maynard Keynes so she was in economics politics um you know Mm. science the arts you know everything she was knew people or was connected to people and you know I suppose it's that's why she's so interesting to read about and if we can perhaps skip over her um questionable morals then, um, you know, you, there's lots to be learned. It's just like you're Blyton, you have to skip all those parts. It's maybe the first time that anyone's compared with Jimmy Walsh in a Blyton. I like it. And I think ultimately for me, it's it's very difficult to choose, certainly to choose between her fiction and her non-fiction in general, because I think if she hadn't written any fiction, we probably wouldn't remember who she was now. Um, great as I think her non-fiction is, I don't think it would have stood up on its own in terms of popular appeal I mean, it probably would have been known by academics but i'm not sure that the reading public would have rushed out to no. read essays um but at the same time it enhances what she did so much i think if she was just had just been a novelist that she would still be for me the greatest writer of the 20th century but i don't know there would have been so many gaps in understanding what she what she thought and how incited she was about other people's writing, about other, the state of the nation, all that sort of thing. Mm. Um, looking at these two books individually, um, I think I would lean towards a room of one's own of the two. Mm, it's so hard, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think it's just such a significant book, as well as having many of the same qualities of, as it has in terms of great writing and humour and... Um, I mean, the section where she writes about not being allowed to walk on the grass um, and getting shouted at by by someone at um, at Cambridge that I think it was Cambridge, either Cambridge or Oxford. Um, there's as much going on there in terms of like dynamics between people and you know embarrassment and um, anger, all these sorts of things that she can depict in a scene in fiction. She manages to get into this perhaps exaggerated but non-fiction, um, as well as having a really important message, however limited that message might be. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my long-winded way of saying that in my decision-making, I'm going to go with A Room of One's Own. What are you going to go with? Well, I would have to go with the fiction every time because um, I think no one writes like her. And, you know, anyone can have an opinion on what's going on in the world or on literature or anything, but 
I think to write like she wrote is phenomenal and I don't think anyone has ever reached the same heights of creativity and um, pioneering ability to just completely transform how people viewed literature and how people viewed how you could write a novel. She paved a way forward for a completely different you know, literary tradition, I suppose, and her books are just beautiful. I mean, my favourite is Between the Acts, um, and I would read that book. With I would quite happily let that be the only book I ever read ever again if I had to. Wow. Mm. Oh, see, Rachel, now I want to change my mind because that's such a persuasive argument. <laughs> <laughs> and she just is, like, when I'm not reading her, I forget how, her fiction, I forget how just brilliant it is. It's so much, so much better than anyone else I read, it seems. I'm... Oh, I, yeah, I know that a lot of people don't go on book. My brother claims that Orlando is the worst book he's ever read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't um, love Orlando, I have to say, but um, yeah, I mean, Between the Acts is beyond anything. It has to be read. I must confess that I I love Between the Acts, but I do end up skipping the pageant bits. I think we just I think I've admitted that before on this podcast. In fact, but, um, <laughs> I yeah I love all the rest of it which is you know just about the other half I guess there's a lot of pageant bits in it <laughs> but when, when she starts quoting the play that she's made up I lose interest no I think I love that part but you know well <laughs> yeah, is. I, so yeah I go back and forth between To the Lighthouse and Jacob's Room as my favourite I think oh really interesting <laughs> you, seem, you sound so judgmental <laughs> <laughs> you fool <laughs> That's uh, how I feel, Simon. <laughs> I assumed. <laughs> oh, so I'm just going to have to stick with my original statement because otherwise I'm just going to argue myself back and forth. Yeah. This is definitely the hardest decision I've made. Even more difficult than when I had to choose between rereading and not rereading. I'm coming out, coming out in cold sweats, Rachel. <laughs> it's me. We don't want that. <laughs> you don't really have to choose. It's totally fun. It's all fictional. <laughs> yes. Thank goodness. Well, I think we have come to an end. Yes. We don't know what we're going to be discussing next time. We do know what we're going to be oh, discussing next time. Because that's when we're doing I Capture the Castle and Guide Your Daughters. So we are. Thank <laughs> you for reminding me. Can I just say, dear audience, that not once has Rachel remembered what we're doing when we start <laughs> doing the podcast. <laughs> oh, dear. You're a burden to me and a trouble. I'm so sorry. I really am. I'm the worst person in the world. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will remember for next time. And will you reread them for next time? I will find a way to make that happen, yes. (laughs) So, yes, we'd love you to join in reading those uh, or rereading those or one of those um, if you are able. We don't know what we're doing for the first half, so some of our usual um, lack of preparedness. Preparedness? Preparation. Preparation, that's the (laughs) other one. Thank you very much. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yes, I've, I've forgotten where that sentence was going. So... Next time. Next. See see you all next time. Bye. Bye.